Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed. We're continuing our series of the life of Christ now and we're on episode 6 and this is taken from John chapter 15. Brother John entitled the podcast, I Am the True Vine. Now this is uh, part 6 of a series of 197 classes we hope to uh, stream via podcast. Uh, It's a phenomenal resource for the Brotherhood, for Christadelphians and for those who are interested in studying the Bible. Brother John was a member of the Enfield Ecclesia and I hope you really enjoy this class. Please leave us a message or drop us a comment if you wish and we'll do our best to pick them up. Hope you enjoy. God bless. Until next time. Bye-bye. evening brethren and sisters and young people. Well in the this gospel record of John brethren and sisters we first of all need to establish two points of movement. Let's have a look at the end of chapter 14 which we of course finished at our last class that after the last supper which was obviously held in the city of Jerusalem somewhere uh, the last verse says but that the world may know that I love the father and as the father gave me commandment even so I do arise let us go hence so they got up and they left that room now the next movement we have is in chapter 18 and verse 1 this is the only record we have of of his next movement and in John chapter 18 and verse 1 it says when Jesus had spoken these words he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. So, okay, they they leave the upper room and they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, here is a a map of Jerusalem in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brethren and sisters, we don't know where the upper room was. It was in the city somewhere. Tradition has it around about here, in that area there. Whether it was there or not, we don't know. We do know that it was somewhere inside the walls of that city, which means to get from in the city over to the Garden of Gethsemane here, He's got to cross the valley of the Kidron. So John 14 says they leave the upper room. John 18 says they cross the valley of the Kidron. So between there and the Garden of Gethsemane, you have John 15, 16 and 17. So all of that is spoken as they made their way in the darkness of the night out of the city and across here. And I believe they probably would have gone through the, 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 uh, the temple itself because the doors were open at night. That was the tradition. That's why they had the night watchmen. Not to keep people out, but to watch it. And I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ would have walked through that temple. Now, why do we say that? Well, because John 15 records, brothers and sisters, that the discourse about the vine. Now, what was it uh, that would have uh, prompted him to talk about the vine? What was it? Now, I believe there could have been two things. Uh, you may remember that in, in the course of the, of the feast, He said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now that probably was one of the reasons that prompted him to talk about the vine. The other reason, I think, brothers and sisters, is this. That Josephus records that many of the gates of that temple were embroidered with sculptures of a vine. They were quite famous. 
And in his works, the, uh, the Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus has this to say about one of those gates. He said its first gate was 70 cubits high and 25 cubits broad, but this gate had no doors, for it represented the universal visibility of heaven and that it cannot be excluded from any place. Its front was covered with gold all over. It had also golden vines above it from which clusters of grapes hung as tall as a man's height. And there's another reference to those vines uh, in his other work of concerning the wars of the Jews. So that in both of those works, Josephus makes, re- makes reference uh, to these, these vines which were embroidered into the wall. They were sculptured into the wall and then coated over with gold and they were one of the wonders of that temple. They were not only on one gate, they were on several gates. And I believe that as the Lord would have gone through there, brothers and sisters, uh, seeing this wonderful thing, perhaps in a moonlight night, seeing that there and being prompted by his own words at the supper, he talked about the vine. And of course, as they also made their way over the Kidron, uh, down over the Kidron on the slopes of Olivet, uh, there would have also been the vineyards, which all of which I think would have prompted him to talk about the vine. And so he said... I am the true vine. And you can imagine him, but just imagine if he walked through that gate and there's this huge, magnificent sculpture of these grapes hanging down tall as a man. And he'd look up there and he'd say to his disciples, you know, I am the vine. Now, brothers and sisters, the first thing we note about that is this. He didn't say, I am the trunk of the vine or the stem of the vine and you are the branches. He said, I am the vine. He was the whole thing. Oh yes, later on he was to say they were the branches. But he didn't just liken himself to the trunk of that vine, to the stem of it. He was the vine. Just the same as in the first Corinthians chapter 12, uh, we learn about the body of Christ. Uh, we, we learn about people who are parts of the body. Uh, they might be a hand or a foot, or an eye, or an ear, as Paul says in the 1 Corinthians 12. But Jesus is not only the head, brothers and sisters, he's the body. He's the whole lot. It's all in corporate in him. It's one of the great things about the work of our Lord, the work of the atonement. It's an incorporate thing. I am the vine. And if he's the vine, he said, my father is the land worker. That's what uh, uh, the word husbandman means. Uh, We we would say today, we would just simply say he was a farmer. Uh, But the Greek is a land worker, that is a farmer. Uh, The RSV has a vine dresser. And so in that vineyard, uh, brothers and sisters, on which the Lord was the true vine. Now when he says true, uh, true doesn't mean true as against false, but true as against that which is typical. Not true and false in that sense, but there were things under the law and in the Old Testament that were typical of him. Now here is the essence of it. He said, I'm the essence of that. And my father is the land worker. He is the farmer. And what a farmer he is. Now I just want to show you a couple of references in relation to the vine, brothers and sisters. Psalm 80. Now here's the farmer at work. This is what he did. And of course as the Lord would be talking about these things, There's no doubt in my mind that these are the passages of Scripture uh, which would have crossed through his mind. 
Psalm 80 is a wonderful psalm, uh, brethren and sisters, it really is. It speaks in verse 1 about the shepherd of Israel who is Yahweh that leads Joseph like a flock that dwelt between the cherubims and shone forth. And you get a picture of the shepherd of Israel. I'm I'm telling you this because I want to show you the connection with Joseph here in this vineyard of Yahweh. So here he is, the shepherd of Israel, and he's between the cherubim and he's shining forth, which means he had to go eastward, doesn't he? He's moving eastward. And he's leading the flock of Joseph. And he's before Ephraim, Benjamin and Manasseh. And Ephraim, Benjamin and Manasseh were on the western side of the camp when the four square encampment. Reuben, Issachar, or rather Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Naphtali. But Ephraim, Manasseh and Benjamin on the western side of the camp and so the shepherd of Israel is leading the Joseph like a flock because Ephraim and Manasseh is his two boys and of course Joseph, uh, rather Benjamin, is his only full-blooded brother. But the psalm puts Benjamin in the middle. The law had Ephraim, Manasseh and Benjamin but he's got Ephraim, Benjamin and Manasseh because right behind the shepherd of Israel is the son of his right hand is what Benjamin means. And so verse 17 says, Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand. So he moved Benjamin to the centre. So here is the flock of Joseph, here is the shepherd of Israel. But he's not only a shepherd, brothers and sisters, he's also a farmer. And verse 8 says, He brought a vine out of Egypt. He cast out the heathen, in other words, he weeded the land and he planted it. He prepared room before it. He, he made it so that it could, it could develop. There was no inhibitions with it. It could develop and he did cause it to take deep root and it filled the land. He's a wonderful farmer. He got it deep down so that it would suck the moisture of the ground and so it would grow. The hills were covered with the shadow of it. It just spread abroad and, the, and the, of course the, the vineyard developed and the boughs that were white, the goodly cedars, was like a cedar tree. And she sent out her boughs under the sea and her branches under the river. And Genesis 49 said, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run under the sea or over the wall. So here is Joseph, who was down into Egypt, didn't he? And Yahweh developed down there this vine, didn't he? And when Joseph had passed off the scene, and another pharaoh who rose and knew him not, he took that vine and he planted it in the land. And it was to spread over the land, brothers and sisters. But they let, it says here in verse 13, that they let the boar out of the wood to waste it. They, they, the Gentiles got amongst it. The wild beasts of the field devoured it. And the vineyard was burned up, it says in verse 16, and it was perished. And that's what Israel did to that vineyard, brothers and sisters. Yahweh had gone to all that trouble He had developed that vine in Egypt with Joseph. He had developed it down there. He had sent Israel down there to where Joseph was and it took root there. He transplanted it in that land. He made room for it. He did everything possible. He got it to go down deep. It was well rooted in the ground and it grew wonderfully and they let the Gentiles in and they burnt the thing to the ground. 
But that wasn't the end of Yahweh's vineyard. He, Yahweh is never defeated by sin. He will never be beaten by sin. So he, what did he do? Verse 17, he says, Let your hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom thou made a strong for thyself. And he brought forth that man whose name is the branch and redeveloped that vine, regenerated it. Jesus said, I am that vine. I am the true vine. And here was the son of man, the man of his right hand, the son of man whom he made strong for himself. The Benjamin of that psalm, brothers and sisters. Now that's one of the, uh, the Old Testament figures and, and Jesus' mind would be full of that as he was talking about that vine. Now the other one is in Isaiah 5. There are many of them, but there are some very significant prophecies about that vine. And I thought it would just be as well at this point, and I think it's good that we take this time just to look at these scriptures to just see, brothers and sisters, the background of the Lord's words. Now look what he did. Here's the farmer. Look what he did. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my well-beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Now I want you to notice that. The vineyard belongs to his well-beloved. It says that twice there. Isn't it? I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my, my beloved touching his vineyard. My beloved hath a vineyard. It's his. So the farmer planted it for him. It was all about him. I am the vine, he said. It's all about him. He went to a lot of trouble, brethren and sisters. He fenced it. He went around and he picked up all the stones around the place and he planted it with the choicest vine. Now we're going to have a look at that word in a minute. It's only found three times. Choicest vine. Sorek. You know, Samson lived in the valley of Sorek. That, that's the Hebrew word here for vine. It, and it's the word which, which depicts the, that, that purple grape that produces the very best red wine. That's the one he's talking about. So he, he didn't plant anything. He didn't get any sort of variety. He got the right variety. He got the very best. He got the Sorek. He fenced it, gathered out the stones, planted it with the very best variety. He built a tower in the midst of it to, to watch it. He made a wine press therein and then he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it was brought forth wild grapes. Now we're left in no doubt as to what that vine was in verse 7. For the vineyard of Yahweh of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. So you see, brothers and sisters, it, Yahweh's vineyard and the vineyard which he gave his son is Israel and all those related to Israel. Not just Israel after the flesh, we, as we know that we've been grafted into that vine. But here we are and it's the vineyard of Yahweh of armies we're told specifically who it is. And they, that this whole kingdom, the foundation of the kingdom was put down and all the work, Yahweh went to all that trouble for them and gave it to them. And they mucked it up and it brought forth wild grapes. Now verse 4 poses a question. The question is this. When God says, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. 
What, what could I have done any more for it? And you look at, say, those few verses then, you think, well, I don't know. I mean, look what he did. Look at the trouble he went to. You know, brothers and sisters of Vineyard, they say it takes a long time to really get established, to become really productive to the highest degree. And he looks and he says, now, now what on earth could have I done more for that? And you know, if you don't read that properly, you can say to yourself, well, he couldn't do any more what he did. There was one more thing he could do. And he did it. Now you turn to Mark chapter 12. And having posed that question, there's an answer to it. The parable of the vineyard. And it's Isaiah 5, isn't it? Chapter 12 of Mark, verse 1. He began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard, set a hedge about it, digged a place for the wine fat, built a tower. Where have you read that from? That's Isaiah 5, isn't it? And the certain man there, of course, in the parable, is God himself. But working through his son. Because this man went into a far country. So it's not God personally now, it's his son. Because the vineyard belongs to his well-beloved. Well, well, what could he do more? Well, he's done all that work. And now what he does, he sends these servants to see what what the the people who have been put in the vineyard to work there, the house of Israel, what have they done? And they kill this servant, they stone this one, they shamefully treat this one. Verse 6. Having yet therefore one son, his well beloved, straight out of Isaiah 5. What more could he do? Well, that's what he did, brothers and sisters. That's what he did. Above all else he did, he sent his son. You know, that's like saying God brought Israel out of Egypt. And he, he, what did he do? Well, he killed their neighbours' children that they might go free. And they weren't worth a cracker. Ezekiel 20 tells us that they, they, that they were stubborn and refused to obey God even then. And yet God goes and puts to death in every house in Egypt, the eldest son of the house, and strikes all those houses with deep grief. Opens up the sea for them. They walk through the sea. He drowns their enemies. The food they want falls out of the sky. Their shoes don't wear out. Their clothes don't wear out. Took them through the wilderness. Split Jordan. Conquered the nations of Canaan. Gave them to the judges until the time of the kings gave them kings, gave them prophets and the question is, what more could he do? He sent his son, brothers and sisters. And you know, it's very serious when you think of it like that, isn't it? And you know, when you read back in the Old Testament scripture and you read things like this, you need to ponder it. You need to think about it. We all need to think about it. We really do. We think, well, you read the Old Testament, oh, isn't it wonderful? They had Moses as their leader. There was the pillar of the cloud, you know, fire by night, cloud by day. There was all the miracles that were performed. There was the, the, the brazen serpent, the remarkable things that happened. But we've got his son. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the way God intended that the new covenant would be written in the hearts of people like it had never be done before. Behold, the days come, he said in Jeremiah, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not my covenant I made with them when they left the land of Egypt, he said, which covenant they break, 
But this is the covenant I will make in those days, says Yahweh. I will write my law on their hearts. Well, why couldn't he get it in their hearts then? Were their hearts any different, brothers and sisters, than your heart or my heart? They were human hearts. They weren't different. Why did not that law get written then? Because the motive force was not strong enough, was it? But it is now, and if we don't get that law written in our hearts now, brothers and sisters, there is no more he can do. This is it. So Mark 12 opens up with that comment from Isaiah 5. What more could I do? Well, he sent his well-beloved. And it's interesting, you know, that that parable comes after the question about John the Baptist. Or rather, by what authority Jesus did the things that he did by overturning the tables of the money changers and, and throwing out all those that sold the animals in the temple. They said, well, who gave you authority to do that? And he asked them a question. The baptism of John, was it of men or from God? And they couldn't answer. He said, well, neither do I answer your question. But he did. So the next day he came back with that parable. It was clearly obvious he was making reference to himself being the well-beloved and Isaiah 5 said, My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. It's his. And the answer to the question, by what authority you do this, is that I own the place. I own it. That was implicit in that parable. Now all of that, brothers and sisters, you know, those two monumental references to the vineyard would have been unquestionably the forefront of the Lord's mind going out of that room, the son of man that God was going to make strong for himself to rescue that vineyard from tragic ruin and the well-beloved who would come to do the only last thing that God could do to save it, to send him his well-beloved and beyond that, brothers and sisters, he cannot go or need not go. The times of this ignorance God winked at but now commands every man to repent. Why? because of that man who he hath ordained, whereas he given assurance unto all men and he hath raised him from the dead. We need to think, brothers and sisters, about what God has done and think really deeply about that. And that would have been well and truly in the mind of our Lord as he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to do just that that God had said he was going to do. But that was the background to the parable of the, or rather the, uh, the story of the vine. Now back in Genesis 49, this is the, where the other words, where the other places where Sorek is used. Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter. That is, the king, the king shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. For Shiloh shall come, says Brother Thomas. That's how, not until he said, For Shiloh will come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, Sorek. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, his teeth white with milk. That is a magnificent reference, brothers and sisters. So the, the king would come from Judah and he would come on the foal, the ass's cult. You can't mistake, can you? Zechariah 9. Behold thy king cometh unto thee, riding upon the colt, the foal of an ass. That's that prophecy, isn't it? And so he rode into the, into the city. Hosanna, they said, to the son of David. And Shiloh had come. And he rode over the brow of Olivet. 
Kentucky Road, brothers and sisters, along this track here. Can't see much of it, but he would have come from this direction over here. Mount of Olives is there, so the, the, the top of the mount would be here. Well, Bethany's over here, down here somewhere. And he'd come along here like that and rode around and over the brow of Olivet and that's when he saw the city, didn't he? And he wept over it. Then he would have crossed the Kidron and he probably would have tied the little colt right against one of those gates. Right against the gate where the vine was. Binding his colt to the vine. And in the parable of the vineyard he said to the Jews, see the prophet said, the vineyard of Yahweh of armies is the men of Israel and the house of Judah. And he would have bound that little colt there and he would have turned around and said, in the power of the vineyard next day, he said, God will miserably destroy those, those fellows who hired that vineyard and he will give it to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And the little colt got tied to that vineyard and that colt that had never been ridden was a symbol of people that had never been used in God's service but now they will because they're tied alongside that vine and he said I'll give it to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Oh I tell you the magnificent stuff in here about that vine and when he did that brothers and sisters he was to wash his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes which was to make his eyes red with wine and his teeth white with milk. That's not talking about a man who's inebriated with drunkenness. It's talking about a man who's full of life. His eyes sparkle, and his teeth shine, and his garments are absolutely pure, brothers and sisters, because they've been washed in the blood of that grape. And how did the Lord Jesus Christ establish all that he did? We, we talk about his blood. As Brother Robert says, in the blood of Christ itself, he said, you mustn't look at the blood too closely. Of course you don't. He's not talking about the fluid, brothers and sisters. He's talking about what it stood for. And the blood of that grape stood for that man's perfect life. Perfect life. A perfect life. You ever thought about a perfect life? Think about you and me with all the uncleanness of our nature and the, and the things we do with it and the bias to evil that's here that we've got inside of us and we're supposed to believe clean flesh, this ecclesia we're supposed to believe, we believe nothing of the sort we believe, brothers and sisters, this nature is biased as in and we prove it every day of our life think about a man who lived a perfect life with that nature and then think about the price that was paid for our redemption and think about the effort that it took to make it and when he did it, it was like washing his garments in that blood and he was raised from the dead by the blood of the everlasting covenant and he entered into the holy place, heaven itself, with his own blood. That's not unclean blood. That's the blood of a pure life. That man had eyes that were magnificent, teeth that were magnificent, clothing that shone, brothers and sisters, because he was a man that came as our king to establish the principles whereby we might live and live forevermore. Now that's your vineyard and there was the wonderful symbol and these were the things that the Lord was trying to tell these people. I am the true vine. All of these scriptures would have been gathered up in his mind and he would have known the whole background to them. Now the other place where Sorek was found, Jeremiah chapter 2. Tragic, this place. And in Jeremiah 2, this is the third of the places it's found in Isaiah 5, Genesis 49, and Jeremiah 2. 
And in Jeremiah 2 verse 20, Yahweh says, For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou saidest, I will not transgress, when upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest playing the harlot. Look what God did. He said, I released you from the bondage of death and sin, sin and death. I burst the prison house of sin and death for you. And you said, oh, I'm so thankful, God. I won't, I, I'm so grateful to be out of this, this bondage to sin and death. I won't transgress. He said, under every hill and on every tree, under every tree, on every hill and every tree, you, you went and done the wrong thing. Yet, says Yahweh, I have planted thee a noble vine, Sorek, a right seed. How then? Uh, thou turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine under me. What happened? Well, you know what happened, of course. We all know what happens. We all disobey God. But when the time came, brothers and sisters, to plant the right seed, the really right seed, and the noble vine came from that maiden from Nazareth, Mary, well, it didn't go wrong, did it? It took deep root and it produced a wonderful vine from which much fruit will come, brothers and sisters. I am, he said, the true vine. I just thought it might be as well just to, 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 to run through some of those issues that are in those marvellous chapters which must have been, just had to be in his mind when he said, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Now verse 2 of John chapter 15. He says... Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Well, of course you do. I mean, anybody, I, I know nothing about horticulture, brothers and sisters, but you know, common sense would tell you that even if you don't know how to prune, prune your, your fruit trees or your roses, whatever you might attempt, I know nothing about it, but common sense would tell you that it's not much good leaving wood on those, on those trees or bushes that's going to produce nothing. They're going to get in the way. And so I'm told one of the things that are essential in all pruning is to let the light in, get the light into the tree or the bush so that you don't shade things that, 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 that need the sunshine. And if you've got a branch there that's doing no good and it's blocking out the sunshine from somebody else, you take it out. And Judas had just left that room. He was in the way, brothers and sisters. He's gone. He went, it was night. He went out. He was one of those tendrils of the vine that, that grew and produced nothing. That's the first thing you do. You get rid of those that are in the way of others and that don't bear any fruit itself. And you prune it, it says, that, that it might bear fruit. You see, it says in verse 2, he says, And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you see, it's not as if you take out the unproductive branch and you leave the productive branch alone, you don't. Even the productive branch has got to be given some treatment with the snippers, doesn't it? You've got to prune that. Why? Because if you don't, well, it'll grow long and spindly, it'll produce grapes, little grapes, dozens of them, but not very good quality. But if you prune it, then the bunches will be bigger, the grapes will be richer, much better. So even that branch, which is producing fruit, brothers and sisters, needs to be improved in quantity and quality. And we hope, don't we, we're all of that nature. We're all of that kind of people who produce fruit. But we don't get away without pruning. Got to be purged, it says. 
He purgeth it. And here Jesus chooses a word which is only found twice in the New Testament and it means to cleanse it. Now you don't clean a grapevine, you, you, you prune it. But you see what the Lord is doing, brothers and sisters? The Lord always interpreted symbols. Now here's a little, a little bit of advice for budding Bible students. Always interpret symbols. Don't transpose a symbol across the line to the substance and leave it untranslated. If we're going to talk about blood, we're talking about life, whether it's the life of all flesh unclean or it's the life of a dedicated life. It's got to be one or the other. If we talk about touching a dead body in Numbers 19, Paul calls that in Hebrews 9, dead works. See the point? If we talk about the most holy place in the Old Testament, Paul in Hebrews calls it heaven itself. You don't ever leave things uninterpreted. And so Jesus said, he purges this vine, but he's not actually purging, he's not cleaning it, he's actually pruning it. But you see what he's doing? He's giving a moral application. Immediately he chooses a word which, which has a moral application. Look, the only other occasion is in Hebrews 10 where it's found. Here's the only other occasion of this, of this Greek word. And have a look what it is. Have a look at the, the context of, of what the purging consists of. Then, we'll, then we understand what pruning is, brothers and sisters. See? Verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifice, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged, that's the only other occurrence of the Greek word, should have no more conscience of sins. So what's he cutting off the vine? What's he snipping off of our lives, brothers and sisters? He's snipping off of our sins, isn't he? How does he do that? Well, in two ways, doesn't he? Well, he should. It should be done two ways. One is we seek forgiveness through Jesus Christ, don't we, of our sins. We, we hope that God will forget them. He'll cut them out of our life. But we don't want to go on producing sins, do we? So Peter says that you know, under the new covenant God will turn everyone away from his iniquities. And what God is trying to do with, with, the, with the pruning hook is say, look, that's pretty bad in your life. I don't want that left there. That's going to be, that, that branch is a good branch. It's producing some fruit, but that's a bit of a, bit of a, 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 a handicap to it. We'll take that bit off. Because that, that's something that's wrong. And God expects us, brothers and sisters, to feel the pain of that. Cutting things off as it hurts. Fine, may not feel it, we, we, but we, this, we're using the moral sense now. We, we feel it, and our sins are cut off. But we should learn, brothers and sisters, that having had that taken out of our life, we should be grateful for that. We should be thankful for that. We should say to God, oh, I was pleased that you forgive my sin. We should have faith. You know, some people say, a brother rang me the other night, he said, a person came to me and said, do you believe your sins are forgiven? And he didn't know what to say. Well, if we don't believe, brothers and sisters, I tell you, they're not forgiven. Of course we believe that because Jesus Christ has died and risen again, hasn't he? And we should be grateful that that's happened and so grateful that we should believe it, believe that God will do that and therefore we should not go on producing that sort of fruit. We should at least try and make some effort. And you see what pruning is doing for us. We're purged and have no more conscience of sins. We, we, we should really act, react to that. 
That's what we should do with pruning. The, the vine does. It can't help it. It's just applied, isn't it? When, when, the, when the expert pruner goes to work, that vine will react accordingly. He knows exactly what to do. And the vine will react according to that, to that man's pruning. You and I do it and we make a mess of it. We grow all leaves and no fruit. The chap comes along and does it entirely different, beautiful. And fruit is produced because he knows what he's doing. Well, so does God. And so all those things that come upon us, all the trials and the tribulations, the tensions, brothers and sisters, let's accept them. Let's bow to them and say, right, what have I got to learn about this and, and how do I go about learning it? And, and, and see that it's getting rid of our, out of our lives things that, that, that are unnecessary for the production of fruit. We ought to be thankful for that. Now under the law of Moses, you know, Leviticus 25, said about pruning the vine, look what he did. Oh, these things are so simple. You know, they're so plain when you, when you see through these symbols, brothers and sisters, of what God is trying to tell us. Look what they did to the vine in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 3. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest under the land, a Sabbath for Yahweh. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. Ha! So we're going to get, get pruned for six years. Six! The number of man, isn't it? So we can, we can rest assured that during the course of our mortal probation, man, we're going to get pruned, brothers and sisters. We sure are. And if we're not, well then God's we're out, we're finished, we've been cut off and left but we hope we're being pruned. Now for that can happen for six years. Now in the seventh year you don't do that. Verse 5, That which groweth of its own accord of thy harvest thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed. Now that's a rather quaint expression, isn't it? It really means a vine that has not been pruned. But brothers and sisters, the word for vine undressed, as the margin says, Hebrew of thy separation. Do you know what the word is in the Hebrew? you know what it is? It's the word Nazar, from when we get Nazarite. What were the Nazarite doing? What was the purpose of the Nazarite vow? It had one, just one singular purpose. Nothing else. One purpose only was given for the Nazarite vow. And that is that man or woman was given an opportunity to imitate for any period of their own nomination to imitate the high priest. That's what they were doing in the Nazarite vow. And what did they do? Well, it says they were neither to come any dead body, they were not to, to, to uncover the head and they were not, brothers and sisters, to drink strong wine or strong drink. But it didn't only really say that. It said they weren't to touch anything of the vine. They were not only not allowed to drink wine or strong drink, they weren't even allowed to eat grapes, moist or dried. It was very specific. It went right through the whole list of how you treat grapes and it says no way because the Nazarite touched any grapes. Now the grapes are not going to make him drunk. The wine obviously, that was the purpose for that. But the grapes are not going to hurt him. But you see brothers and sisters, his hair was all long, wasn't it? And he was the vine. That's what God was trying to tell him. You don't have to go near it. You are the vine. And he was like a person in the kingdom of God that for six significant symbolic years of their mortal life as man 
God has been at work with the pruning tool. But now in the millennium, the, the Sabbath to Yahweh, when the kingdom is made, brothers and sisters, there'll be no need whatever for pruning. We'll be like that Nazarite, all of us in the kingdom, with our branches spread out and all the fruit laden upon them. Never again any need for pruning. The, the process is complete. Now that's what was here as far as pruning was concerned. Nazar, the Nazarite, the vine undressed. That, that's, that's the meaning of the term. And Jesus said, if I do this pruning, he said, with a good branch, it'll bring forth more fruit. But there's a purpose in it, brothers and sisters. You know, it's often you hear people say, they go through trial, they say, oh, I, I, I don't really understand this trial. And I, I don't really understand it. Well, I can't understand that statement really because I always think to myself, well, what crime is this? I have no difficulty with my trials because I know what I'm like inside. I know what I think and I, I know what I'm like, brothers and sisters. I tell you, I might come here and teach you the Bible, but I'm no better than any of you. I tell you that now. I'm a darn miserable creature at times and I know exactly why these things are coming. I don't have to go to God and say, why? But we accept it. We say, right. Fair enough, and we've got to learn from it because it brings forth more fruit when we do that. Now Paul says, like pruning, he's talking about pruning and uh, Jesus is here and in Hebrews 12 Paul said, look, you know, these trials and tribulations are, are not joyous but grievous. They're grievous, he said. But afterwards, afterwards, they yield that peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are exercised thereby. Grit your teeth, brothers and sisters. Grit your teeth and look inwardly. Apply everything personally. Don't think about what other people are doing to you. Think about what you've done and how you stand before your God and make your peace there. And if you grit your teeth and suffer this pruning, this persecution, this, this trial that comes upon you, don't worry about it. But I'll tell you what it'll do. If you have the right attitude, you'll come up better fruit. Absolutely. Don't come up bitter. You know, brothers and sisters, that's in the past tense. They, they would have been astonished at what he actually said. Because in the Greek, as RSB, Rotherham and other reliable translations put it, ye are already clean. Oh, they said, are we? We're already clean. They would not have thought that. We look back on, on that with hindsight and we think, wow, they had a long way to go, didn't they? There was much to learn. They didn't even understand at this point what was going on. But Jesus said, you're already clean. What did he mean by that? He meant, brothers and sisters, that he was at work pruning, wasn't he? It was his vineyard. He wanted the fruit. Of course, it was his father's vineyard too. We know that. But the father and the son working together to produce fruit in those men. And he'd been busy at work. And you know, brothers and sisters, God only expects us to develop fruit according to the process of our maturity. We're not going to develop fruit that the two little girls baptised the other night. They've just been planted. But their lives will go on if the Lord delays and we don't want him to, but if he does, their lives will go on and they will learn by, by their mistakes and they will learn by what, the practice of the, of the things they do right. They will learn that that's right. And give them a couple of years and, and, and there'll be fruit. There'll be really good fruit on their body. It's not the very best. The best will come a bit later. But to every stage of their life, God's at work in them. Isn't he? Every stage of that vine. Every stage of it. The divine pruner is working at it. Jesus said, you're already clean. 
And my word, brother and sister, hadn't he done a lot of pruning? He had on many occasions really got into them with their, with their ambitions to be the greatest, their lack of understanding, wanting to bring down fire from heaven. Peter says, all this crowd will leave you, but I won't. You know, and all this, hadn't he been doing a lot of pruning, brothers and sisters, and rebuking them silently sometimes, and sometimes openly by example, and other ways he rebuked those disciples, and he was ever at them. You're already clean, he said. He wasn't waiting until later on to do the work. He was at it already. And my word, it was a wonderful work he was doing. And how did he do it? Through the word, he said. Through the word. You know what Ephesians 5 says about the bride of Christ? The washing of the water by the word. So the word is the washing agency. It's it's the agency that cleanses, brothers and sisters. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Dividing asunder of soul and spirit and a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there anyone, says the Apostle, that's not open manifest unto him, under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It is incisive, brothers and sisters, the Word of God. It does two things for us. It cuts us to our heart. It did on Acts chapter 2. They were cut to the heart by it. And it slashes us down. How many times have you crawled out of this meeting when you've heard a, a, a brother get up here and, and really bring home to you and to me the power of that word and you go under your seat you think, oh dear, oh dear. It cuts deep into your soul. But at the same time, it washes you. You're clean through the word that I've spoken unto you. Now says Jesus in verse 4, abide in me. Now this is important, brethren and sisters. I'll tell you how important it is that this word abide is 12 times in this chapter alone. It's rendered in verse 9 as continue and it's rendered in verse 11 as remain. Same word, but you'll find it abide, continue or remain. Same Greek word, no less than 12 times in this chapter. Now why would he want to emphasize that? It's obvious, isn't it? You see, if he is the vine and we're in that vine, brothers and sisters, you see, this is where your free will, my free will comes into play. I can choose today, tonight, I can choose, my choice, I can choose to walk away from Jesus Christ. If I do that, then I can get no moisture, I can get no nourishment from that vine nor would the pruner be bothered with me because I'm no part of it. And all these benefits that come from pruning, brothers and sisters, it really does depend to a very large degree as to whether we stay in proximity. Now you might say, well, that's pretty obvious and I wouldn't go, wouldn't you? You know, brothers and sisters, how many times, you, you know, there are people that get dispirited in the tree. There are people that get depressed in the tree. Do you know how they do that? They see brothers and sisters at odds with one another. They hear nasty things and they don't expect brethren and sisters to act this way and they get quite depressed and they start to make judgments about the truth on the basis of people. And they say in the end, well if that's Christadelphians you can have it. And they choose to walk away from that vine because they've been affected by people. 
You know, brothers and sisters, that's so easy to do. And how many people over the centuries, over the years that we've known in our own lifetime have done that? You go and see a brother and sister's left the truth and say, brother, what's wrong? What, where'd you go? Why did you come to me? I wouldn't come to that bunch of hypocrites. Haven't you heard that said? What have they done? They've chosen of their own volition to walk away from that vine because of people. Brethren and sisters, I'll tell you something. If you were the only person in this hall and every other brother and sister turned out to be bank robbers or murderers or adulterers or whatever, I'll tell you something, I'll tell you something. Here and now, God will still give the land to Abraham. You know that? It won't make a whit of difference to that promise. If everybody in the truth went astray, brothers and sisters, all but you, Christ will still come and the kingdom will still be on the earth. You know that? It's not going to change his purpose a whit. Stick close to that vine and don't judge the truth by the behaviour of people. Stick in that vine and drink the moisture of it and the nourishment, brothers and sisters, and don't go away from it. Abide. 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 That's four times. Say it three more times. Four, three times. Twelve times. Don't go away from that vine. Keep in there. Because when you do, then you're lost. Christ can do nothing for you, brothers and sisters, if you walk away from him. So all the help we get and all the exhortations we get in the word about, you know, that we need God and we can't do anything of ourselves, we can do something of ourselves, you know, we can stick there, we can stay there. And sometimes we don't even understand it, like Peter did. In the synagogue of Capernaum, when the Lord said, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Peter said, Lord, he says, you've got the words of eternal life. Where can we go? He didn't really understand it, did he? He was bewildered. But he did one thing. He stuck it out and stuck with him. He said, where can we go? You've got the words of eternal life. He didn't understand it, but he knew enough to stay there, brothers and sisters. Now, that is important. Why? Because he said, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. And it can't. I don't know if you've ever noticed that we had a, at the back of our shed there was a, a vine growing on the fence with a next door neighbour there. It didn't ever produce any grapes. It just was a, a real nuisance. You'd walk around this narrow part of the house and run into this vine with all the spider webs in there. And I got sick of it. And, and so I saw the neighbour as he cut it down. And so I never forgot doing it. I'd cut it off and, you know, I'd throw the branch behind. You know, by the time I'd turned around that, those leaves and with it, I was amazed. I'd cut this thing off and I threw the branch behind, went on with the proof, looked around and in no time that leaf was withered. And it came home and I thought, what a tremendous lesson. Didn't last a second, honey, just wilted like that. I thought, what a wonderful lesson that is. Walk away from our Lord, brothers and sisters, you walk away from everything and you can't bear fruit of yourself. Now Russell quoted Hosea 10 Sunday morning. Wonderful exhortation too, I might add. He quoted Hosea 10. Look what it says here. In Hosea 10 and, and verse 1, where the prophet said, Look, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. Look at the margin. Israel is a vine emptying the fruit which it giveth. And no sooner it comes than it's gone, falls off. It's, it's diseased. Because he was bringing forth fruit to himself, brothers and sisters. 
there might have been a show of, of, you know, of a few works here and there and some high-sounding phrases, but they fell off the vine that, that it, because he, it, it was not rooted in the vine. It was something he was trying to do on his own. You can't do that. Jesus said, you, you can't bear fruit of yourself. But uh, just have a look at chapter 14 of Hosea. Israel had to learn this. They had to learn they couldn't bring fruit of themselves. You, you look what it says. Uh, verse 4. Russell quoted these words. Look, look at them in the context of what I'm talking about here. He says, I will heal their backslide. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the Jew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return and they shall revive as the corn, grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon, he says. Notice the word for the scent, brothers and sisters, in the margin. Memorial shall be as the wine of Lebanon. It's a memorial. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do with him or with idols? I've heard him, says God, and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. That's a little conversation. So you see, Ephraim says to God, oh, what a lesson I've learned. God says, bring me words. I don't want animals. I don't want big bullocks. I don't want buckets of blood. I don't want your firstborn. Words! Just say, just say to me, Assyria's not going to help me. I'm not going to look to the nations for help. You say to me, I don't want to ride upon horses. I don't want tanks, as they were in those days. I don't want great weapons. Horses won't save me, say to God. And I'm not going to trust in my hands anymore. I'm a fatherless person. I need your help, God. I'm going to throw myself on you. That's all I want, says God. Those words, I want nothing more than that. And when he got those words and he learnt the lesson that God would now cause him to blossom and bud and fill the world with fruit, Ephraim says to God, I don't have anything more to do with idols. I don't want nothing more to do with them. God listens to him and then Ephraim says, I'm a green fir tree. And God answers him and says, yes, you are, because from me is your fruit found. A little conversation between God and Ephraim. And the little conversation is about a tree that's growing and it's bearing fruit. And Yahweh reminds him now, with this attitude, yes, he said, you're not bringing fruit of yourself anymore, you're bringing it of me. See? So Jesus said, stay with me. That's Hosea. Can't bear fruit of yourself. Without me, he said, you could do nothing. Come back to John chapter 15. Oh, it's a great subject, brothers and sisters, this vine. It's a thrilling thing. I love this horticulture and agriculture. I just love to, to see the lessons in nature and this full of it here. And he says it in verse 5, he says, look, I am the vine and you the branches. He repeats it again. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Margin says, severed from me. Actually, the word chorus in the Greek means a space from. So you see you've got a branch, it's, it's embedded into the trunk of the tree, chip it off, you've got a space. You've created a space. What happens to the branch that's chopped off? If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. That's Ezekiel 15. Have a look what this says. So simple, brothers and sisters. You know, a good thing to remember. Ezekiel 15, John 15. Help the memory. 
So you burn the vine, it's no good. Now here, here's a little chapter, it's such a small chapter, but just have a look, it says one thing. Ezekiel 15. And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, what is the vine tree more than any tree, or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? In other words, he says, Ezekiel, what is the essential difference between a vine and any other piece of wood? What's the difference? Well, he says, concerning the vine, shall wood be taken thereof to do any work? Would you? Or will men take a pin to hang any vessel thereon? So you're going to make a cupboard, brothers and sisters. You want to make a cupboard. You want to make a set of drawers. Uh, you want to make a flagpole. You want to make anything. Would you go and get a vine tree? Would you go down where you and chop a vine and dig among the rubbish and pick up the trunk of a vine? Would you? What on earth would you do with it? What on earth would you do with it? Look at the thing. It's absolutely useless. Now, Ezekiel says, verse 4, Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it. And the midst of it is burnt. Is it meat for any work? In other words, would you use one end of it? No. What about the other end? No. How about the middle? No. Burn a lot of it, he says. You can't use it. Behold, when it was whole, was it meat for any work? No. How much less shall it be meat for any work when the fire hath about it and it is burned? Now what are we being told, brothers and sisters? What are we being told? Well, we're being told that the vine's no good to make anything else. Yeah, but you see, you've got to take a positive view. What's the positive lesson? The positive lesson is this, that the vine has one single purpose in life and that's to produce fruit. There is no other purpose for a vine. It doesn't have any other purpose but to produce fruit. Now later on in this chapter, we may get there tonight, we may not, we're going to talk about how that fruit is produced. But brethren and sisters, we're going to go into the kingdom of God, we have to carry some fruit with us. When the two spies came back to the land, from the land, on a pole between the two of them, they were carrying a bunch of grapes from Eshkol which means a cluster. One bunch of grapes between two was the expression of numbers. One bunch of grapes between two. And two of those spies, I think they would have been Caleb and Joshua, had cooperated together to produce fruit. That's the only virtue the vine's got. There is no other use for it. Now that's what Ezekiel says and that's what Jesus said. So we come back to John and we're going to see now, brothers and sisters, the absolute necessity to stay with the truth despite what anybody else might say or do. Don't ever give the truth away. Now Jesus said this in verse 7. Now you listen. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, you ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Now I want you to notice something, brothers and sisters. It is never a question that he will abide with us if we abide with him. It's never a question. He never made the point that he would move away from us. He never made that point. The thing is, it's all up to us what we're going to do. He, he remains constant and faithful. The vine will, is ever ready to give the nourishment to any branch that grows out of it. 
It's never a question of what the vine will do. The question is what we're going to do. Now the question is this, if we abide in him and his words abide in us, we can go to the Father and ask him what, he, what we will and it will be done unto us. Now there is an explanation, brothers and sisters, of what it means when we close prayers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in chapter 13, whatsoever you ask in my name. Now here's an exposition of the name. What does he mean by my name? Well he means that we've got to abide in him and his words have got to abide in us. Now you think about that. So we abide in him because we love him. Because he gave himself for us. And we don't ever want to be separate from him. We never want to be found in this world without him. We depend on him so much. We bring him into our lives through the word of truth because the words abide in us and we bring him into our lives through the word so that our yearning, our heart is embedded in him. We have a desire in life to know him and to know what he is about and to yearn to be like him and to be attached emotionally to him and he comes into our life by the words, by his sayings. So we think, what was our Lord like? Well, on one occasion he said that. On another occasion he taught this. On another occasion he taught that. And we, we regurgitate those words in our mind and we become so familiar with him, brothers and sisters. Now what's happening? We're becoming familiar with him. So familiar that we, we treat him as he said, yeah, my friends. He's a friend of ours. He's a real friend. And you confide in your friends, don't you? And, and there's a two-way conversation with friends. And you learn to love each other and, and he becomes a friend with you. Now if that's going to be the case, God's going to look down from heaven and he's going to look through his son, straight through him to you and he's going to see an absolute resemblance. Now you can tell me this, if you go to God, brothers and sisters, in prayer, in that man's name, with that attitude, God will never ever not hear you because he's listening to his son. See what he's saying? You, you abide in me and you let my sayings bring me down to you and you make your life my life and there's no way my father won't hear you. Could you ever imagine the father turning his back on his son in heaven? You couldn't ever imagine it, brothers and sisters. Well, if we're in him to that degree, ask what you will. And there's our problem. That's why we say, oh, our prayers are not answered. Well, maybe they are and we don't know it. Maybe they're not. And there's your reason. Now, that's how, that's how strong it's got to be. You, you can say a million times over, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, wouldn't mean a thing if you're not in him, and his sayings are not abiding in you. Wouldn't mean anything. It's just an empty phrase. There's got to be, brothers and sisters, that real growing out of that vine. Growing out of it so that you're absolutely fixed into that vine. All the life-giving properties of that vine flowing into you. And that connection the Father will never despise. Ask what ye will, he said. Herein he says in verse 8, Is my Father glorified? that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. That's if you bear much fruit, obvious. If you don't bear fruit, brothers and sisters, you're not his disciple because you're not in him. Now, what does he mean by fruit? Now, I believe there's two things. There's two ways we can bear fruit. We can bear fruit individually, for example, the fruits of the Spirit. We can build into our lives love, now don't say them quickly, just say them slowly. Love, joy, peace. Think about it. Long-suffering, 
goodness, faith. Wow. Just imagine a fruit in a bowl like that. Look at it. Now we can do that in our own life. All those things can, can be developed in our own life, brothers and sisters. But you know, fruit is something it's got to be produced. You see, it's, it's, it's no good having a, an orchard with one tree in it. You've got to have other trees, don't you? So you've got to extend yourself and be able to induce fruit in others. Now you, you look at Romans chapter 1. See, we've got to go out and, and bear fruit. We've got to say, well, we brought a person to the truth. That, that's fruit. You see, this is what can be done, brothers and sisters. Look, Romans 1 and verse 13. Now I would not have you, this is Paul speaking to the Romans, he said, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come unto you, but I was hindered, he said. That word let means I was hindered. I was, at times God, God didn't allow me to do that. That I might have some fruit among you also, even as amongst other Gentiles. Brethren and sisters, Paul's fruit hung all over the world. It was everywhere. There were, there were vines, there were fruit trees everywhere that Paul had planted. He had fruit growing everywhere. So shall you be my disciples. Later on, in this very chapter, we won't get it tonight, but later on Jesus said, go forth and bring forth much fruit. Now he just told him to hang on to the vine, didn't he? He told him to cling to that vine. Now he says, go forth. Now we didn't mean chorus, make a space between... He meant let that branch grow out and out and out and out and out and so that it becomes almost you've transplanted in other places that more fruit comes here, there and everywhere. So Paul says, I want to come to Rome to have fruit among you as I've got it among all the Gentiles. Now you look what he told the Philippians in chapter 4. Now here's a wonderful principle, brothers and sisters. Here's a marvellous principle. One you want to try and practice this. It's a, it's a really works. In Philippians chapter 4, you know, we, we, when we read the Bible, we should sort of try to get everything out that we possibly can. You, you look at these words in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. He said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, he said, you've well done that you did communicate with my affliction. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no ecclesia communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Now listen to this. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Now how about that for growing fruit? Have you ever tried that, brothers and sisters? It works. Let me tell you what he's saying. In simple English. You know, there are a lot of brethren and sisters in our meeting who are quiet people, unobtrusive, perhaps a bit shy and hesitant, even maybe nervous, who feel they're nobody. And, and you know, there are times when we go out and we think, well, we'll, we'll go and help these people, you see. We, we, will, we will go and help them. And so, so we go out and we patronise them and leave them just as depressed, just as nervous, just as inhibited as we were when we got there. Uh, I, I, my wife used to tell me off for doing this, but it works. But you go and let that person do something for you. Ask them to do something for you and see the reaction you get. Their eyes light up, the whole world shines. They can actually do something for you. And you know what you're doing? Paul says, I didn't want you to... You sent all this stuff to me in prison. 
I, I really appreciate it. He said, but I didn't really every time need that gift. But I love to see that fruit developed in you. You know, I've, several occasions in my life I've, I've come across this little principle and, and it works. You go up to a brother who feels he's nobody and you, and you don't tell lies, you need help and you, you, you don't tell lies to do good but you can be honest about it and you might want someone to go and do your message or, or, or do something for you that you haven't got time to do yourself. You go and ask this brother and he looks at you as if you can't believe it, he just can't believe it that you want him to do that. I can't believe it. And their eyes light up and they can't do it quick enough and well enough. And before you know where you are, if you keep practising that brothers and sisters, you can develop that brother and sister remarkably that they really feel they're doing something. That's what Paul was doing in the Philippians. And so fruit can be produced. You can produce it in your own life. You can grow the fruits of the Spirit. You can go out and spread the Gospel. You can bring people to the truth and grow the fruits of the Spirit. And you can get branches that are already in the Ecclesia and induce them to do something that they themselves can see that they're actually worthwhile. And doing that, you're pruning them and they're going to be encouraged to do more. There's a hundred different ways of going about producing fruit. Now, take the most wonderful example Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But he said, if it falls into the ground and dies, it brings forth much fruit. And that's in John chapter 12 when he was talking about his own death on the cross. If he had chosen, brothers and sisters, to present a single grain of wheat to God, polished to perfection, so what? but he chose that grain of wheat to fall into the ground and decay, or not decay so much, but to die. It died. And if it hadn't died, there'd have never been other fruit. And look at the fruit he's produced. Look at the fruit that hangs in the world today and has hung there ever since he died. Have a look at the fruit, brothers and sisters, that's come from his name. Just have a look at it. Because he went out plant himself as it were in death uh, that others might be developed he said Jesus said in John chapter 15 he said look he said if you do this he said you come back there he said this if you do this he said if you bear much fruit, fruit so shall ye be my disciples that's a very interesting point here brothers and sisters the RSV renders the Greek more accurately it says so ye shall prove to be my disciples. Well, it's so obvious, isn't it? I mean, this lectern here is a vine. If the four corners were branches, if you grew a bunch of grapes here and a bunch of grapes over there, you'd say, well, it's got to belong to that vine. So obvious. If it didn't belong to that vine, if it was a branch laying on the ground, it wouldn't bring forth fruit. The fact that fruit's on it shows that it belongs to that vine. And you know, brothers and sisters, it is so simple and you know, that simple rule, we very seldom use it. But Jesus said to his disciples, by their fruits ye shall know them. And we judge people about what we hear about them. We worry about what other people say about us. If this ecclesia ever got to the point where they made a judgement upon people that we know each other so well, if we ever got to the point, brothers and sisters, where we made judgement what we hear about each other, then we're not worth the kingdom of God to which we've been called. If we can't come before each other 
and to show that we've been with Jesus Christ and that become the rule of our acceptance, then what on earth are we doing here? So you shall prove to be my disciples. And you've only got to look at a man's life, a woman's life, a brother or a sister, in whatever capacity that they can work in the truth. And you look back over their life and you think, my word, what a wonderful person that is. Done their best. Left behind them something of, of value and profit that will increase more and more uh, the, the more it's cultured. By, the, by your, he said, so shall ye be proved to be my disciples. And the converse is equally true. Twice dead, plucked up by the roots, bearing no fruit, brothers and sisters. It's just so obvious in life. We don't make judgments on people. We don't have to do that. We're not the judges of the earth. But we can, brothers and sisters, learn to love each other for the good that is done in our life. And if, we, if we've got those fruits, if they're behind us and before us, then that's the proof of it. And Jesus said, look, if that's the case, if that's the case with you, verse 9, as the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue. That's your word. Abide ye in my love. Now don't read that too quick, brothers and sisters. Look. As. As. He didn't say the fact that my father loves me, it's a fact that I love you. He didn't say that. As the father loved me. He's not just saying, brothers and sisters, that you know, I love God and I love you. He's not saying that. What he's saying is this, that the quality of the love that he has for us is the same as the father has for him. You can hardly comprehend that, can you? See what I'm saying? Like, he's not, it's not me saying, look, I love that person and I love you too. It's like me saying, I love you just as I love that person. It's the same love. It's the quality of it. The fact that he loved God, he didn't have to tell him that. He was talking about the quality of that love. And you know, that overwhelms you. You think, how could that be? How on earth could that be? As the Father loves me, so I've loved you. That's the quality of it. And you, you just stand in awe of that. Shouldn't we therefore continue in that love, brothers and sisters? You see what I'm saying? It, it's the quality of the thing. Who would want to walk away from that sorek? That's the sorek, isn't it? Isn't that the best grape? Oh, who'd ever want to move away from a vine with that sort of love in it? That, that's the lifeblood of that vine. The love of the Father for the Son. And that's the quality that he passes on to his disciples. The same as that love. I can't hardly believe that when you read words like that. But they're there. You think, how on earth could that be? Continue in my love. But it's got to be seen in action, doesn't it? If ye commandments, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in me. See what I said? Like before I said, if ye love me, ye will obey me. Now the same thing here says, as the Father loved me, this is the quality of my love for you. Stay with that love. And he says, oh no, it's there by what you do. It's not that that love will produce the good works in, this, in that sense, but the fact that they're there proves the love. This is the whole thing. You see, it's, it's just so, so wonderful, brothers and sisters. And, and he, didn't he keep the Father's commandments? 
and show his love to us. Greater love hath no man than this than he laid down his life for his friends. We're going to read this later. Got to be seen in action. Beloved, says John, let's not love in word and in deed, in word only, but in word and deed. It's got to be done. It's got to be seen to be done. And if it is, brethren and sisters, then said Jesus, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you. There it is again, abide in you, and that your joy might be full. See, my joy abides in you, and therefore but abides in us, we become full of the joy. See what he's saying? So here's the quality of my love, and here's the quality of my joy. Now tell me, brothers and sisters, tell me, who would dare contradict this? Who would dare contradict me when I say this? What greater joy have you got in life than to obey God? Think about it. When are the happiest moments of your life? When do you feel that sense of well-being, confidence, of love, thrill? It's when you're doing the right thing. It's great joy in that. Don't boast about it. But don't let anyone take that away from you. If we're in that, in that son as he's in the father, that love is flowing through us, brothers and sisters, we stick close to it, then coming with that love is a joy. There's a tremendous joy. Oh, there's a great joy in that. And you feel that warmth of feeling that you know. And you know, this was spoken, brothers and sisters, in a context of suffering. Suffering. When Peter and John came back from having been thrashed by the Sanhedrin, scourged, they counted it all joy to suffer for his name's sake. Not to prove they were his disciples to all the world and not to show that they could do great works, but they had been privileged to suffer for him. Joy came back full of joy with lacerated bodies. Think about that. And this is the context in which these words are found. They're wonderful words, brothers and sisters, and you you just have to, with your mind, travel with him as as he went over that brow of the valley and down through the Kidron, you know, past those temples and just see those things in the moonlight, walking along with him, fancy listening to this discourse. And of course, he would have said much more as John said, the world couldn't contain the books that could be written if we were to write down all the sayings of our Lord. So he he would have filled out all those things which we only can just see the shadow of them. His disciples would have been absolutely thrilled with it, brothers and sisters. And then to watch him in that garden, there's perspiration like drops of blood coming out of him. To see the agony, brothers and sisters, he went through that, that that vine might be rooted into that soil and that we might abide in him. And as long as we're near him, there's never, ever, ever a question whether he'll abide with us. It doesn't even enter into the picture. The question is whether we're going to stick close to him. Brothers and sisters, we, we, all of us have our trials. We're going through a trial ecclesiastical at the moment. Don't worry about that. Look, we'll stick. We will stick to Christ, brothers and sisters. We will stick with him. And if we do that, there's no problem. No problem whatever. And we will come out of our experiences richer for it. There'll be joy and there'll be strength. And all of us, for and against, we hope all of us there'll be joy. Because we'll all learn something. If we do the right thing, and if we do the right thing, It'll be our fruits that'll prove it, brothers and sisters. Words will prove nothing. Recriminations will prove nothing. Accusations, whispers will prove nothing. It'll be what we do. That's what'll prove it. 
And what we have to do is to develop that fruit in ourselves, the fruits of the Spirit, and extending that in others, giving every opportunity for everybody else to try and join with us and influencing people to produce fruit to the glory of God. If we do that, brothers and sisters, then he is the vine and we are the branches.